Well, welcome back to Out of Curiosity, our podcast where we're seeking biblical clarity on modern questions. I'm Garland. And I'm Nick. And, and the question that we're going to be looking at today is, is uh, timely, given uh, just the nature of where we find ourselves in America right now politically. Uh, it's become a very polarized uh, environment uh, politically in our nation. Um, people seem to be more and more anxious and uh, angry than, uh, than at least in recent memory. And what we want to maybe just ask this question is, how do Christians navigate a polarized two-party system civilly. Yeah. You know, when we've talked about the issue of interacting politically in general, we've talked about the idea of becoming a prophetic minority again. And uh, and what we meant by that was both recognizing that we're not the people in the majority as evangelical Christians in America, but I really want to key in on the word prophetic. And uh, and there's a lot of different ways that word prophetic gets used, but there's one particular part of the the uh, Judeo-Christian prophetic tradition I want to look at, and it's the willingness to critique your own people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we see some, uh, I'm going to look at one good example and one failed example of this in the Old Testament. The first comes from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, and uh, and this is the incident after uh, David has committed adultery and murder and then tried to, as a part of a cover-up, and Nathan the prophet comes to him. And so Will you, uh, will you read 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 7? Yep, this is NIV. <clears throat> then Yahweh, the Lord, sent Nathan to, da- to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And he goes on from there. Yeah, he goes on from there and describes all the things that David did. This is one of the most dramatic moments in our Old Testament. Um, Really cool. It's really cool, this confrontation moment. And I think the the weight of it is put when you've considered what happened in chapter 11, and that was David has committed this act of adultery. The woman has gotten pregnant, but she has gotten pregnant, so he now realizes his sin is going to be exposed. And he goes as far as murder to cover it up. So think about the implications for the prophet Nathan. David has already shown that when the consequences of his sin could get exposed, he was willing to murder to cover it up. Mm -hmm. So Nathan is taking into his hands the possibility that he could also fall victim of the king's cover-up. By Nathan exposing that he knows what David did, Nathan is putting himself at risk of being killed. And, And he is willing, for the sake of the integrity, for the sake of what's before God to confront his own king um, at great personal risk for the sake of what is good. Now let's contrast that example to another one that we find in First Kings chapter 22. So to give some context here, Israel's split in two now. And so you have King Ahab up in the north, who is just an awful king. And then you have uh, King Jehoshaphat uh, down in Judah. 
And so these are the two kings, and they kind of start to build a little bit of a relationship with each other. And so uh, in First uh, Kings chapter 22, they're considering allying with each other to go to war. And so um, we'll start in uh, chapter 22, verse 4, and let's just read through verse 6. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of Yahweh, the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. And so... We get this answer from all these prophets who are saying, yeah, go for it. The Lord's with you. And as we read on, Jehoshaphat has this sense, something is not right here. He recognizes, I don't know exactly how he knew that something wasn't right, um, but he, he says to the king, hey, is there not actually a real prophet around here um, that will tell us, tell us what to do? And he said, well, there's this one prophet named Micaiah, but he only ever says bad things about me. We don't want to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And so they, Jehoshaphat goes, no, that's exactly who we want to hear from. Let's bring him in. And at first, he kind of mockingly goes along with it and goes, sure, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Go to war. It's going to be great. And they say, no, tell us the truth. And he pronounces judgment because of the sin of, of this king. And, and the point that I want to draw out here is that we have a contrast of two different kinds of prophetic traditions. One in Nathan and Micaiah himself who are willing to go against their own people for the sake of communicating the truth of the Lord. And then we have this whole group of prophets um, serving in Israel at, in the second story that are willing to turn a blind eye to what's wrong and what's rotten in their own court system, their own uh, king's court, for the sake of not bringing on the wrath and the anger of their king for the, main t- the, the purpose of maintaining status quo. Mm-hmm. And what's really rich about this tradition and also pretty unique, you know, we, we've in some senses, come to, to come to accept this in Western culture, but in ancient Near Eastern culture, this is really a remarkable thing, the idea of self-criticism. Uh, the idea that you don't see the world in the sense of our people are the good guys and everyone else are the bad guys. But the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, were some of the first people who had the courage to say, actually, no, Israel, we're missing it here. Mm-hmm. We need to do better. That's a revolutionary idea. And so I think when, when I think about how to navigate, and this is something I've been chewing on a lot as someone who really feels a little isolated in the two-party system and a little confused on where do you fit, uh, where do you fit in this current really polarized era, what I would say is we need to embrace the, the tradition of the prophets in this sense. Our loyalty is to Yahweh. Our loyalty is to the Lord. Our ultimate loyalty is not to a king on earth, a president on earth, or to either party. Now, that doesn't mean we don't show respect to the president. We absolutely submit to his authority. But where I think a lot of Christians get in trouble is when we give all of our loyalty to a party, and here's the way it ends up looking. We can only see the good that our, of the group that we've given our loyalty to, and we can only see the bad in the other party. And we embrace that us and them where my party's the good guys and that guy over there is the bad guy. And we cannot criticize our own group's failings. Mm-hmm. And we can't celebrate the good ideas in the other party. Right. And so I think one of the things that would be most helpful for us as Christians is to dig in, aside from American politics, really dig into biblical ethics. Um, what would it look like to live out the kingdom of God way on earth? 
as it is in heaven right now. And then be willing to advocate for that kind of lifestyle to both parties that we kind of stand in this odd position where we have not given away our loyalty to either party, but can advocate to whomever wins elections for what we believe is good and right and true. Mm -hmm. So I hear, I hear statements all the time, you know, and increasingly in in this political cycle, uh, this kind of statement and, and just, just, comment on this because I, th- I think I'm hearing you say this is this is problematic. The statement goes something like this. No Bible-believing Christian would vote Republican or would vote Democrat or would vote... Un- un- that, that's, I hear that a lot right now. And yeah. I, that when you say that us versus them, we're the good, they're the bad, that's what came to my mind was that kind of a, a, yeah, a yeah, yeah. of an exclamation. So uh, comment on that. Well, I'd say a couple things. First of all, like at a pure you know, straight objective observation that is just simply not true because there are Bible believing Christians who will vote vote on both sides of the aisle this this year. So obviously it's It's just, just, it's not true. It's objectively not (laughs) true that no Bible believing Christian could, because there are many who will in fact split across party lines um, who are Bible believing Jesus following Christians. So that out of the gate, we can just reject that as not true. Now I don't think that's what people mean when they say it. I think what they mean is you shouldn't be able to, Right, And the assumption there is that one party, uh, they could say it a couple different ways. One, one party gets it right, or at the very least, one party is obviously anti-God, anti the Bible, anti-Christ. And, uh, and so therefore, you could not possibly vote for that party. And I think the question that, that we need to be willing to say is, is there anything good in both parties? Can I recognize some things either party is advocating for, even if I don't agree with all of it? Can I recognize the good in what somebody else is going after? And am I willing to be self-reflective of my of the party that I've maybe traditionally associated with and go, man, I, I can see where we've gotten some things wrong, both on a policy level, but also on a personal level. This is where we've had some moral failings, where we've had some character issues on both sides that that need to be addressed. And can and I think that that would bring I think something revolutionary um, in a day when, man, in polarization, people dig their heels in and double down defending everything their party has done and critiquing everything the other party has done. Um, and and I think if, if we could actually have the willingness, can you imagine what a breath of fresh air it would be mm-hmm. if you had somebody on either side of the aisle who was willing to say, hey, this leader in the other party, they're doing a great job right now, and I really respect the work they're doing for the country. And, you know, I think my party has some things we could do better here. Mm-hmm. Just the note of humility and civility it, it's 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 gone by the wayside it's completely like. yeah and it is something that is is inherent to the christian tradition that i think right. is really powerful is the willingness i mean it's it's repentance mm-hmm. um, and repentance looks weak especially in the internet culture where if you ever say i got this wrong that's going to go on your internet record and going to get brought up over and over again. And you need to maintain a perfect record of never admitting you got something wrong uh, to be able to. And I think that's just, that's not a biblical way of doing things. That's not who we are as Christians. And so I think we need to be willing to go away from that. So the, the, the idea of we're canceling them, you know, that party, that, that leader, it, it just, it's, it comes with such an, an air of pride in that and not any self-reflection on we could all cancel all of our each other yeah. easily with stuff we've said in the past or done in the past. None of us are walking above <laughs> above the, the fray on that. We've all yeah. done and said stupid things, and so that's yes. the reason as Christians we actually are embracing. Uh, you were talking earlier about the the unique tradition of the prophets to have the willingness to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you were saying that, I was it, it caught my mind. 
they also had the willingness to write this down. Yeah. Like you, in the ancient culture, you only wrote the victories of the, the king or the mm-hmm. pharaoh, whoever it may be. Like the Bible's filled with the critique of the people of God. Uh, and I think that's from the, at the very base level, that's instructing something towards us. When you look at our, up on. our four gospels, apparently the apostles felt it necessary to record their colossal failures in yeah. following Jesus. I wouldn't want to put that in there. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, I would love to just paper over all of my mistakes and my failures. And yet the Christian tradition is one of admitting fault mm-hmm. and, and being willing to critique oneself. And so I, I think, I think politically that would be really powerful. And I think we need to admit that when we follow um, a consistent Christian ethic, it could have a splitting party lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you reminded me earlier of a, of a scholar and some of the things he pointed out about the first century Christian ethic. Can you kind of bring that out? Yeah, there's a, a, a first century uh, church historian and scholar. His name's Larry Hurtado. And uh, he wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. It's the greatest title of a book. Awesome. And uh, in this particular book, he was he was arguing what enabled the church, the early church, to, uh, to grow in the a culture where they were having a very strange message and they had a very strange ethic, yet the church kept growing and uh, they were, he was just analyzing that question. And uh, in summary, he, he had five things. And then I've, I've heard Tim Keller take these five things and make a point that I'm going to steal from him. So uh, let's give credit where it's due. Uh, the early Kurt, the early church did these five things. And as, as I reflected on, I'm like, if we could just do these five things, uh, here's what they, here's what they, that marked them in the first century. The first thing is uh, they were a they were passionate about diversity. They had slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female in the same room, eating the same meal at the same table, worshiping the same God. That was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Where in an honor shame culture, who you invited to your meal said something about your status. Revolutionary. Uh, the second thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing. Um, they they relentlessly helped the poor. They welcomed the poor. They didn't kick the poor out, but instead brought them in. Uh, they created, in a sense, a social welfare system yep. where it did not exist in the Roman culture. The third thing is they did not retaliate. When you when you hurt them or their mm-hmm. family members, they didn't come back and hurt or kill you. Yep. When you... When you uh, uh, came into their city and destroyed their homes. They didn't come into your city and destroy your home. So we might say they were they did they were non-retaliatory or civil. Yeah. Uh, the fourth thing is, they were unbelievably pro-life mm-hmm. in a in a culture where uh, boys were uh, more favored than girls. It was it was a common practice to let. Uh, to take either deformed kids or girls and leave them out. It's, it's infanticide. Yeah. Leave them out for exposure to be picked up by uh, uh, essentially slave traders. Yeah. And the Christians would go and rescue these children. They would go save these babies. Uh, so they were very pro-life. They would run toward plagues yep. and not and at risk themselves yeah. to take care of human life. And to be and, and also for historical information, there was such thing as abortion back then. Yes. And Christians and Jews were categorically against, against it. Against it. And so they were pro life. Very, in all very pro life. From unborn to young infants to people who are dying of plague. Di- yeah. They fought for life of all humans. And it was it was striking to the Roman culture. The fifth thing they did is they had a they had a zeal for monogamous marriage. Yep. In a culture where uh, it was common practice to have the wife that you had your children with and then the mistress that you had sex with for fun, then the uh, the the weird sex stuff that would happen at the temple or at the bath houses, or even to have a same-sex younger boy that you were grooming for sex practice. In a culture where that was pervasive, the Christians said things like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, hey, husbands, 
your wife is your, your, your body is your wives and Hey wives, your body is your husband's and you, you keep sex in this context. Like yep. this, they, they, this very strange monogamous sex ethic. So think about those five things. Uh, and this is the point Keller draws out. I think it's really cool. Two of those sound very progressive. Mm -hmm. We might say very democratic in yep. our current understanding in American politics. Two of those sound very Republican, very conservative. Uh -huh. And one of them right now sounds like nobody. Yep. Civility. They were, they didn't retaliate. Mm -hmm. And her, uh, Keller's taking this Hurtado book just says, what if we just did those five things right yep. now? Uh, and I, that's been really helpful for me to go, man, that, that's, that, that takes me out of my allegiance being to one of these two parties and able to see the good and the critique in both is what I think you're pointing out for us. So just to kind of summarize a few things we can do is one, uh, be careful we don't lend our Christian loyalty to any one party and, and get so tied up in a party that we lose the ability to be critical of our own party and to see the good in another party. And then second of all, that we would have uh, that this, this consistent Christian ethic um, that would really cross through party lines and, and divide or kind of define ourselves by a third way um, that really should both speak to and <laughs> offend both parties at yeah. times. And that's a sweet place for us to be. And so I think that that really is going to be a way for the church to find a home base uh, in the polarized culture we live in. Well, that, that brings clarity uh, and it's timely. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for drawing our attention to that. And thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed how Christians fit into today's two-party political system. We encourage you to look into this more in Out of Curiosity episodes 3, 4, 8, 11, and 43. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.